0: You're listening to The Goop
1: Podcast, made possible by our friends at Burt's Bees. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new here, this is what you can expect. Twice a week, we'll be interviewing a different thought leader. For the most part, you can look out for new episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'll talk to doctors, researchers, creatives, founders, therapists, and healers. I'll take turns interviewing mentors and friends. And my chief content officer Elise Lunin will interview many more people who we look up to here at Goop. I think you're gonna like hearing from Elise, and I hope you'll learn something from every guest we have on the podcast. I know I always do.
0: Hi, I'm Elise Lunan. Today we're kicking off what might be my favorite series on this podcast so far. Granted, I'm incredibly biased. At our last in-goop health summit in New York, GP and I got to sit down with some truly extraordinary people who are in the midst of changing culture in their own varied ways. We recorded those conversations and over the course of the next month or so, we're going to be sharing a few of them with you. If you hear me talking gibberish at any point, it's probably because I let my team convince me it was a good idea to do seven back-to-back talks at Ingoop Health. Oh, and because I didn't sleep the night before at all. But honestly, it was so much fun. I'd do it all again especially if it meant another chance to talk with Sally Cohn, who you're going to hear from today. Sally is a TV commentator and columnist who was on Fox News for many years representing a liberal point of view, which taught her a lot about listening, bridging, and ultimately persuading. Before that, Sally worked for more than 15 years as a community organizer. Her new book is called The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. It's a light read. Ha! But actually, it did make me laugh many points throughout. And it's a really wonderful toolkit that I'm grateful I now have access to.
1: But what you have to do is find some understanding of our common humanity. That in spite of our differences and our disagreements, our history in the past, our habits in the present, there is, we do share more in common as human beings than we don't.
0: We'll get to our conversation in just a second. You know how some harsh skin products can feel like they're stripping your skin? Or on the flip side, how other products leave your skin feeling super greasy? If you've been in either boat before, you'll appreciate Burt's Bees line of sensitive skincare. Their fragrance-free cleanser is loaded up with goop-approved ingredients, like cotton, extract, and aloe vera, and their gentle moisturizers seem to melt into your skin and leave it feeling softer. But I think people fall for Burt's Bees sensitive skincare line because it's effective and it can turn a Monday and morning routine into a welcome kind of ritual. Also, talk about convenient. All you need to do is pop into your corner drugstore to find it. Easy. Learn more on burtsbees.com skincare. That's B-U-R-T-S slash skincare. Okay, let's get to today's conversation with Sally Cohn. I actually wanted to start with this quote that Henry Wads- Wadsworth Longfellow, do you remember this quote? I like reciting people's books back to them because oh, they're always like, I, I don't. Is this quote I
1: used? Oh man. <laughs> if
0: we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility.
1: Do you remember that? clearly no, No. but it's a great quote. I should use it in my book. You should use it in your book.
0: No, but your book is really about bridging and a concept that you call emotional correctness. So can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah, so I, and this is, and, and curiously, I think this might be the subject of my next book. I'm not against political correctness. Like, just, political correctness is a weird concept, by the way. We could talk about this more, but it's something that pretty much now everyone says, 80% of people say they're against, but it's, no one really knows what it is because no one's ever really defended it, and it basically just means talking about people, using language, and, of course, also doing things that convey respect. Like, who's against that? Like, who's against treating people with respect? And even when we don't live up to that, we tend to agree with the aspiration, the basic idea that we want right. to treat our we wanna be treated with respect, we wanna treat others with respect, whatever. So I believe in political correctness, but that's not the whole story, because our intentions also actually do matter. And sometimes we leave them off the table, right? Like if I say something offensive, it's offensive whether I meant it to be offensive or not. And at the same time, that intention matters. It mm-hmm. does matter. It matters if I meant to hurt you or not. It's worse if I meant to hurt you. And. We don't think enough about this concept that I call emotional correctness, which is trying mm-hmm. to be decent and kind in our hearts, in our minds, in our intent. Trying to treat others and see others in generous, kind, compassionate, caring ways. In the same ways we would want ourselves to be seen and treated.
0: Totally. And I know, I mean, I, it, obviously your work at Fox was... Probably very formative for you, <laughs> but it, I thought it was both wild and really inspiring that you're friends with Sean Hannity.
1: And I mean, friends in a loose context. He's yeah. gonna throw you to the well, wall. What's that? You know? Yeah. yeah.
0: No, but that you Brit, like you find ways to bridge. So, like, what are the practicalities of that? How do you have functional conversations? Let's even talk, we could start with functional and then move into, like, conversations that advance the ball or influence or change people's minds. Like, how do you start with someone who is on the opposite end of the spectrum?
1: I get this question a lot, and, I, and it's like, you don't have to start there. Like, the truth is, we have a, a range of people we have political disagreements with, and You know, if you're you're like at the intro level here, you don't go straight to the Sean Hannity's of the world. It's enough to talk to, (laughs) right? There's a huge universe of people we don't agree with. But the fact is, is there's two things. One, most of us don't think regularly about the political or sort of social or economic differences or disagreements we have, even with our close friends. Right, I don't agree 100% with everything every single one of my friends believes, but I've never, really, I've never really quizzed them, so I don't know what that percentage is, but I assume you know, there's some gray area of a grace area that I just, like, oh, we're mostly on the side together, but we don't really test it out. And then there's a sort of gray area in between, and then there's a universe of people we assume we have absolutely nothing in common with, we disagree on everything, and what is true is that we actually probably only disagree with those people on about 10% of issues they just happen to be the things we focus on the most in this country mm-hmm. right and especially in a hyper politicized hyper partisan really ugly moment so that's the first thing right it's like there are a lot of things we all believe as human beings as human beings in this country there are actually a lot of things we tend to agree on we just don't argue about them so it's bearing that in mind first and then the second is is look Quick, like, quick show of hands, how many people, like think about two issues you really feel firmly about, like you're very, whether it's for or against gun control or it's, you know, for or against women's rights or how you feel about climate change or whatever it is, two issues in your head. Now, how many of you, in forming those opinions and coming to those views, first read, like, three research papers on one side, and three research papers on the other side, and two of the leading books on one side, and two of the leading books on the other side, and weighed all of the options, and then said, that's how I feel about immigration. Mm-hmm. Did anyone do that? Right, Well, so how, do you, how, do you, how did you decide how you feel about immigrant rights, or gun control, or whatever? How did you decide how you feel? Well, you just knew it was right who felt right to you, right? You had a feeling first, and then you went out and you found the facts and the information to confirm mm-hmm. your feeling. Well, guess what? That's true of people who disagree with you, too, right. right? They had a feeling about something, and their feeling came from what they were exposed to, their family, their li- right? And then they're now going and finding the facts that confirm those feelings, but if we realize that what we're first starting with is feelings, And the thing about feelings is feelings aren't like facts. You can't argue with feelings. Feelings are valid just because they're felt. If I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you think I should be afraid or not. And so when we can listen to understand and not argue, this is very hard to do. It's so hard. Listen to understand and not argue. And just give people the space to be heard and felt before we then talk, and discuss, that starts to have conversations that lead to change.
0: So can you give us a practical example of how you do that without, and do you know how to, I mean, you must be so good at managing your emotions (laughs) in the moment, right? Because these things, like, they've become our morals, particularly now, right? Like, it's hard not to rage. So what's the, how do you do it? Like, is, is that the ABC?
1: Yeah, so the key thing if we think about the neuropsychology of persuasion, Mm -hmm. right, is that if we have an argument, if we're talking about some issue and you're on one side and I am, and the minute it becomes an argument, the reasoning, thinking, logical parts of the brain, the parts that are engaged in forming new ideas, that part of the brain shuts down and the amygdala and the lizard brain, the fight or flight mechanism, turns on the minute we sense an argument. And you can think about this in your own personal life, right? It's a big difference having a discussion with your partner about something versus the minute it becomes an argument. And the minute it becomes an argument, suddenly, I don't care what my partner is saying, she's wrong, I'm right, like we just, right? Yeah. And so... The key thing is, and in that moment when it becomes an argument and the fight or flight mechanism goes on, you're you're picking sides, and whoever you're in conversation with, they're picking their own side. They're not picking yours. That was the whole reason you were having the argument to begin with. So what's key is, cognitively, to not let it become an argument, to instead keep it at a conversation. Which is of course hard, right? And if you want that very gratifying and very socially rewarded in this moment we're in. Experience of just raging and yelling and screaming and telling them how hateful they are and how wrong they are, and then fine, go right ahead, go ahead, like you have my permission. But it's not going to change anyone, mm-hmm. right? And I, I mean, I read all the research. I talked to all, the, even the extremes, the ex neo Nazis and the ex terrorists and the people who were really, really, really steeped in even the most extremes of hate and none of them ever said they were yelled at enough to the point (laughs) where they changed. (laughs) Right? It's not how it works. Right? In fact, it begins with feeling heard and seen and listened to to the point where then you can listen to someone else. And there's that sort of modeling, that reciprocity. And yeah, so in the book I, I use this shorthand, which was taught to me, of the ABC. And the the A is affirm, right? Affirm doesn't mean agree, right? It doesn't. It means to just, that's what you're feeling. Like, I hear, right, so when my, this, let's go to couples counseling, when my, I've been in a lot of couples counseling, and my partner says, you know, you were mean to me, or you hurt my feelings. I can't say, no, I didn't. Right? I mean, I can, it won't work, but like, they're, they're, she's, they're her feelings, they're hurt. So I have to say, I have to acknowledge, right? Acknowledge or affirm, like, that's where she's at. The B is not, but, because if I say, honey, I'm sorry, but, that means I'm not sorry, right? Everything that comes before the but, I didn't mean. I was just saying it to be nice. So if I can't say, I hear you're afraid of the state of the economy, but it means F you. You also can't say however, which is like the Harvard of buts. So then you say something like, and that's why. I don't know how to use the word. Right, but yeah, but I like it's, know, but it's, it's <laughs> you and I, we aren't those fancy people. And then, then that's when you then actually say what you came to say, right? So listen, like as an example, people are afraid about terrorism. It doesn't mean they should be. It's, right, like statistically they should be more worried about you know, white hate groups going and causing mass shootings, but that's where they are, you gotta meet people where they are, but then you don't have to leave them there. Right,
0: so you acknowledge and affirm, you end them, and then you convince them. Right. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> One of the things I loved about the book is the way that you sort of go from, you s- start with online trolling, which I think we've all either experienced or observed. It's a wild thing to observe. And then you go all the way to Rwanda, right? And the thesis or a through line is that we want to ascribe, we want to turn people into monsters. In our minds, mm-hmm. like, they're horrible, hateful people, but the reality is when you started talking to your own trolls, they thought you were the hateful, horrible monster. So how does that, what is that mechanism and how does that work?
1: Do you get trolled? Have you had this? No. The
0: feedback that I, I mean, I think it's early for me, so just wait, I mean Goop in general gets trolled, but I get a lot of feedback about my voice, which is interesting.
1: Because it's lovely. Thank
0: you. Yeah, no, people love to email and suggest I go and see an ENT or that I sound like a baby Kardashian was one. <laughs> uh, I don't know if the baby Kardashians are even
1: speaking yet
0: and probably not in I mean, sentences.
1: you know... If Chris has anything to do with it, they'll have their own podcast yeah, soon, those baby soon. Kardashians. They're going to be
0: competing in the audio space. But no, I haven't really, I haven't, expe- I mean, I've tangentially <laughs> experienced it, sort of more through the press, yeah. but but what is that experience like when you, like, go behind the curtain in Oz and realize, and see the person pulling the levers? What was he doing back then? Right, there? I don't know what he was doing. I don't was know.
1: was he, he, I think he wasn't doing anything. That was right, the point. That was the point. This is an indirect way of answering your question, but I, it's the, what I've been thinking about lately. And so I was on a plane recently, as happens, coming back from a speech or something, whatever, it doesn't matter. And the plane was delayed and because of some mechanical issues, some weather issue. Sorry, f- fuzzy brain. The B-12 shot clearly wearing off right, right. now. <laughs> right now, live and on stage.
0: She got her first Just B-12 shot. Someone
1: run in with another B-12 shot for my ass. Just Drop your
0: right your pants. Now. Right now. <laughs> okay.
1: So, but for whatever, and I got to say, supremely dumbass reason, the flight had been delayed, like it was supposed to leave at 11, it was now leaving at 1. And because of that, the rules said you now had to change the breakfast on the plane over to lunch. Mm. So we were now further delayed because they had to take the breakfast off the plane and put on lunch. Now, whatever. Like that's annoying, it's stupid, it's a dumb policy. Someone should look into it. Fine, but it is not the job of any of the people on the plane. Like it is not their fault. Also, small uh, detail here, but flight attendants don't get paid until the door closes. So in other words, like their rate is determined by wow. right? So when a flight is delayed, they're not getting at least last I heard. I don't know if that's changed. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So super not their fault and they are also way more pissed the flight isn't taking off than we are and suddenly these all these very i'm sure in their normal lives very nice people right who i'm sure tell their kids not to bully people in school are suddenly and it wasn't the whole plane but it was a, about 20 or so are jeering and yelling and harassing the flight staff the flight attendants right and you watch one person do it, and then you saw a second person do it, and then someone would say something and everybody would kinda pile on and right. And it's I, I I have to believe, I hope, that all those people are like nice people in their lives normally. And that's the same, believe it or not, with most trolls. I'm not saying that there aren't some who are probably actually consistently monstrous most of the time. But the truth was, I was expecting that. What I found when I called them was like, these are like normal, nice people. College students, they're lawyers, they're retired grandmas who are otherwise kind and nice. And in this space where we've suddenly said this is how it's okay to behave, they're behaving that way too. Mm-hmm. Even though, of course, they didn't think it was okay for me or anyone on my side to behave that way. Right. They were justified, and, but, but I started it. I caused it. Right. And that's the thing. The problem is is like what, the, the truth is when you look at all of this, when you look at trolling all the way to genocide, you realize you know, it's not like there are just good people and bad people, right? There are people who sometimes choose to do very, very bad things, sometimes extremely bad things. And those conditions are not inherent in any of us, but they're conditions that are created by a society, whether it's the norms, on a social media platform, whether it's the norms in our politics, whether it's, you know, hate propaganda that leads to a genocide. Right. And that all of us do it. All of us can do it.
0: Where do you feel like, where does that come from?
1: Well, that's a long question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, okay, one of the more startling moments I had in the whole process of writing the book was when I was going to Rwanda, which, you know, I mean, you can read about genocide. You can prepare yourself, but it's not. It's just it's it's not something you can ever actually be prepared for. And it was the not only the fastest genocide in human history, but it was done days, with a right? hundred days. It, it was it was it was done with such an intimacy, right? And you hear the stories like, oh, people killed their friends and their neighbors. It's not like your neighbor who you've seen once or twice bringing out the garbage. It's like we went to each other's home every Sunday. I was their godparents to their children. They were the godparents to my children. And then, suddenly, one day, I butchered their entire family at very close range with a machete. That kind of just extreme brutality. And you think, how can human beings be capable of doing that? What we tend to do is we say, oh, well, that's that's those people. Mm They could never do that. I had these conversations in the wake of 2016, too, where people on the left would say, oh, well, people on the right, the Trump supporters, they could do that, but we could never do that. It's like, what makes you think? And then I talked to a philosopher who said, you know, the reason we call these mass atrocities is because masses of people participate in them. There aren't enough, it's not like a handful of psychopaths. Yeah in Rwanda, or in Serbia, or in Germany, right? It's they're mass atrocities the because south. masses of people do them because oh. it becomes the norm, right? Because that becomes, just like on that airplane, it became, in this small way, that became acceptable, right? And that we aren't being critical and self-aware and thinking enough about what's happening in our conscious and our unconscious minds to sit up and challenge it. And look, in this day and age, that shouldn't be so surprising because it's that same sort of passive, unconscious embrace of hate that's leading to misogyny and racism and classism and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, right? We don't have the kinds of pervasive problems with racial injustice in our country because of a handful of overt bigots. Thankfully, we're not there anymore. We have these systemic Mm -hmm. institutional problems because of All of us consciously or unconsciously perpetuating a problem. Right. And that can lead also to more extreme forms of hate.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that for a bit because we are all complicit in this system that is classist. It, you know, favors the wealthy, it favors white men, certainly favors white people. Do you feel that? just even this awareness, now suddenly people are aware of it and the whole, I mean, obviously many people have been living it for centuries, but do you feel like the awareness of it for people who have lived a privileged life is enough to start dismantling and unraveling it? Like, how do we, it's everything. It's FEMA. I mean, like this week, it's all about FEMA and how if you're not wealthy, you don't get protection from storms. Like, it's in every single system.
1: So how are we going to fix that? It is, um, yeah, just fix that. B12 shots in the ass. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> Solves everything. <laughs> and goop chews. Can I do a plug for goop chews too, which I also yeah. just tried? No, but look, I, here's the thing. is This is a really like scary, awful, dark moment. And there is so much to be outraged, righteously outraged and angry about in our world. And what we often lose sight of is the the sort of hidden miracle of the moment we're in, which is that we're having conversations like this, Mm -hmm. right? That like suddenly white people are talking about unconscious racial bias and unquestioned mythology and and sort of structural perpetuation of white supremacy, right? That you have men talking about misogyny and what to do about dynamics of sexual harassment and oppression. We haven't fixed it yet, but there actually is both something hopeful in that reality of the shift in the conversation and also in the actual making the unconscious conscious. That is, the researchers and the scholars and the activists will say that's part of the first step, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I had, uh, two days ago I was speaking at a college and a self-identified white guy, white college kid in the audience asked me, what he could do about his unconscious racial and gender bias. And you know, I gave him some answers about how you start to expand your horizons and start to try to see the ways in which make those make those sort of unconscious, untested assumptions in the society, start to see them and start to understand why things are the way they are, start to change what you're reading, start to change the classes you're in, expand your but but the first step was that question. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. Right? I met some like 78-year-old white guy the other day, and he told me he was a retired, but he had enrolled in extension classes around unlearning sexism. <laughs> way to go, septuagenarian white guy! Like, right? And and there is actually something about that, right? Like we are all still struggling with what it means and how to do it and how to do better. And by the way, we're also still struggling about. How to not just have it in this kind of interpersonal conversation, but actually talk about how do you change and attack and articulate structural problems and, and systems and right? But the, we weren't having this conversation before. Yeah, it is the first step.
0: Let's take a quick break. I'll be the first to tell you my skin is sensitive and it can turn super sensitive when I least expect it or when it's most inconvenient. And it's been like that since I was a kid. So I try to be careful with the products I use. I was excited to learn that Burt's Bees has a line of sensitive skincare, which has all the clean beauty basics covered. Everything they make is great. From convenient towelettes you can stash in your gym bag, to a face cleanser that leaves skin feeling nourished and refreshed, to their hydrating night cream. But the ultimate go-to might be Burt's Bees Daily Moisturizer. It's a fragrance-free cream, which you'll appreciate if you're sensitive to fragrances too. It uses skin-friendly ingredients like cooling aloe and cotton extract. Whether you use the moisturizer after washing your face in the morning or post-shower, Keep it propped up on your bedside table or pack it in your carry-on. It's a soothing self-care thing that you can look forward to using, and your skin will thank you. You can check out Burt's Bees' sensitive skincare collection at burtsbees.com/skincare. Last April, the European Wax Center launched a campaign called Axe the Pink Tax, which they're picking up again this month. The pink tax is the extra amount the average woman is charged daily for pretty basic goods and services. The campaign empowers women, as well as men, to use their purchasing power for good. If you're not familiar with the concept already, the pink tax is the extra amount that the average woman is charged daily for basic goods and services. There have been a few different groups that have looked at gender-based pricing differences, and it's been estimated that the average woman may be charged more than $1,000 every year simply on the account of being a woman and buying things targeted at women. What's perhaps most frustrating about this is that there is a real lack of transparency. Most women I know don't know that we could be charged more for, say, buying a pink toy or women's deodorant. I love that the European Wax Center is putting their attention here and starting conversations around pink tax and gender disparity. To learn more and to get involved, head to axthepinktax.com. Let's get back to Sally. One of the biggest light bulb moments for me in the book, I cannot remember, like Sally May, Hattie. What, what is her name? The, oh, the, no. consult, or the the Fox News. You were traveling <gasps> with her, and you had dinner oh, with her. Oh,
1: oh, 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 Scotty Nell Hughes. Yes, OK. Yes. And it's
0: not, I guess, that important That's okay. who You're it fine. is. You're fine. But you.
1: Sally Mae. I was like, oh, no, are my loans due? Yeah. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> I had a moment. I'm fine. Yeah. Okay.
0: But those conversations were so interesting, particularly when she was talking about how she grew up with no money and she was in college and she had an African-American uh, roommate who'd been given a scholarship and that's unfair. And Can you explain
1: the story? The long, what is it okay. called, the long story? Oh, okay, so this, this, is this is so isn't helpful. my work. This is Arlie Hochschild's work. For people okay. who haven't read, like, if you wanna buy my book. Yes, it's really good. It is a, I've been told it's a fun romp through hate. But (laughs) if you want to go deeper into understanding the political moment we're in, I actually think Arlie Hochschild's book called uh, Strangers in Their Own Land is one of the best books you can read about this moment. She went and spent time in Louisiana with people who would eventually become Trump supporters. She was more interested in sort of why are these people who are being, who are basically about to become climate refugees Mm -hmm. who are polluting their own, homeland, their own communities, still working in supporting and endorsing both the the extractive energy industries and the politicians who support them. It's a really, really deep study of this community. And one of the things she notes is that there's a story people have, especially on the right, which is this notion that there's a line. There's a line. And maybe the way the line looks now, right, that there are white people at the front of the line. At the end of the line is the American dream, to the extent that it still exists, right? (laughs) At the end of the line is the American dream, and at the front of the line are mostly white people. And by the way, mostly rich white people and mostly rich white men, and I think they would acknowledge this too. And at the back of the line, there's black people, brown people, immigrants, queer people, et cetera. And that the attitude, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but the attitude of a lot of conservatives is... That's probably. I get it. You're probably right that the line isn't fair. You're right. They'll even acknowledge that some, not all, but some will say, as would Scotty Nell Hughes, like it's totally not fair that your ancestors had to put up with this, that women have to put up with, like, not fair. But cutting in front of me in line doesn't make it fair. Mm-hmm. And they see, or have been taught to see, a lot of progressive solutions, liberal solutions to inequality as ostensibly helping certain people cut the line. And in that metaphor, it's understandable, not necessarily agreeing, but understandable why that, seems un- why that seems like you're sort of compounding unfairness with more unfairness. Why should I be punished for this line being the way it is? Now the problem with that is there's never, there hasn't been a line, right? <laughs> It's been a dog pile, right? And the other reality is that who actually got to the top was never, like, they aren't in the place in line where they think they are either, Mm -hmm. right? They think that there's some orderly, fair process. And by the way, this, this myth dates back to the Constitution and to the promise to poor white folks that if you join up with rich white folks, we'll help you get ahead in life, right? Like, there's no... There's not a line. The system isn't fair. It's not working fair for anyone. And so that's part of why I think though that conversation is a more important, as a conversation to have, but understanding, again, not understanding because you agree, but understanding so yeah. that you can then engage. Well, why do you see it that way? And what do you then think is the solution and, and, and start to have those conversations that help people see differently?
0: Yeah, no, I thought it was such a, it was so interesting. And I also felt like, The whole concept of attribution error is also fascinating. Our tendency to believe that when someone else does something hurtful, that person is hurtful, but when we do something hurtful ourselves, it's because our action was justified by some situation or context. Like, how do we correct our own attribution errors?
1: I love that you picked that one up. No one ever asks about that. That's like my favorite psychological theory is the fundamental attribution error, and you can see it at in, in work in politics today. Like the you know the right will go crazy because the left said or did something, or AOC, right? Just driving oh, people. A- A- Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is the entire left now, I believe. Yes. No objections, right? But like we we will we saw this with. Like, Ilhan Omar, right? So Ilhan Omar says something. And not only was it, like, a evoking anti-Semitic tropes and she should be called out and given an opportunity to learn and apologize and move on, but, like, no, she is inherently anti-Semitic and we on the right are calling, you know, want her to be banished, shamed, attacked, canceled in the, you know, sentiment of cancel culture today. But... Donald Trump does or says something offensive, or Mitch McConnell does or says something offensive, or you name it, does something that says, no, 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 they were misunderstood, they were taken out of contact, right? And then the opposite is also true, by the way, right? Yeah. So you tend, to, you tend to view, psychologically, we have a bias towards seeing our own side more generously, seeing ourselves more generously. And... It is really a psychological phenomena shorthand for hypocrisy, which I think is a bit of a problem. And, and when we do that in terms of hate, it's the same thing, where we tend to all think hate is their problem. Right. No, one's, no one's for hate. By and large, no one is for hate. We all agree we have a problem with it, and then you ask, well, where's the problem? It's them. They, it's them. Right. Right. The right says the left does it. The left says the right does it. Everybody's pointing figures. No one's looking at themselves. And it's not to say that I happen to have an opinion of who does it, who did it first, who does it worse. It's the right, but... (laughs) Again, we wouldn't have the problems we had if the vast majority of us weren't part of the problem, right, including those of us on the left. And we can't solve problems by simply only pointing to the most sort of egregious examples and saying, well, you go first. Like, no, that's not what big kids do. No,
0: and it's like the tragedy of the commons.
1: Mm. I was talking to Steven
0: Pinker about this, which is the idea that if you have the commons and everyone has their cows and you know if everyone's cow eats the common, the common is decimated. So who's going who's gonna to hold back? Right. And no, it's the same thing with the line or whatever. Like, why should I... I make everything better... How do we make it a collective, like
1: a, a carbon tax? Like, what's the carbon yeah. tax for <laughs> hate? Well, or just even basic... I, I mean, you don't get the hate until... You, you, you. There's a whole even just basic level of civility and decency, right? And where we've, we've translated into is like, well, but you're mean and nasty, so I can be mean and nasty, right? Like, well, you said something mean on the internet, so I can say something mean on the internet. Well, you're, you know, your side is treating immigrant kids and saying these horrible things about Muslims, et cetera, so we can say horrible things. And it's like, to your point, point, like, and this is increasingly true with social media and the way that social media is then fueling mainstream media and our discourse and our culture in general is like, well, all right, they may have bigger cows and their cows may do it more, but our cows are shitting on the public commons too. And we've just got this giant heap of manure. And when you have a giant heap of manure you know, you get a shovel. You don't just add to it, right? So there's, cert- there's a certain level of, our, our, we're all now feeling justified in demeaning and dehumanizing and otherizing mm-hmm. one side or another. Yeah. As opposed to saying, like, at a certain point, oh, you have to be part of the solution.
0: Totally. And I think it's important, too, on on all sides of the issue, we talked about it earlier. The conversation is happening. We're having it on a stage. It's very scary and people are fucking up, right? Like we're all gonna fuck up and say something. And again, it goes to the emotional correctness, which is more important, I agree, than the political correctness. But it's like keeping the, keeping the conversation open too so that I feel like people who are curious mm-hmm. about maybe how to be more emotionally correct don't feel shut out. It's scary on the, on the left too you know, particularly around issues of race and who, you know, you talk about this in the book, but certainly it shouldn't be the part of women of color to have to teach everyone else about what it is to be a woman of color. And yet, how do we learn? How, how do we learn? Yeah.
1: Does that make sense? No, no. Listen, I mean, this is a complicated time. Yeah. Right. And it is a complicated time in part because of the public nature of our fucked upness. It used to just be, if I fucked up, I fucked up mostly in private. It was great. You know? Right? Just like if I said something mean, nasty, stupid, whatever, it was like we'd be on a couch, you know, having a conversation. It would stay with us. Right? And yeah. now, our the fucked-up things we say or do are mistakes. Right? Including our unintentional ones can be broadcast, can be broadcast by ourselves or broadcast by others. You know, I still think as hard and as scary as that can be, and I do think that there is an overreaction, that we are too quick to kind of vote people off the island for their mistakes as opposed to giving people a chance to learn and grow and change and not just the people who've, like, demonstratedly made lots and lots of public mistakes, but I'm talking about especially regular people, that at the same time, as scary as that may seem, it is still a a constructive part of a process, right? Of, like, you know, yeah, okay, it's scary to get called out for saying something transphobic or saying something that, you know, was racist or whatever, and it's even scarier to be trans or black. Yeah. So you know and and part of it is is the the general discomfort right like the status quo is by definition what's comfortable mhm totally that's how it got called the status quo i'm pretty sure that's latin for comfy pants so <laughs> so you know if you want to change it requires discomfort, right? It requires uncomfortable conversations with people. It requires uncomfortable conversations with yourself. It requires putting yourself, right? If you're going to change and transform your workout routine, your job, your relationship, you're going to have to, by definition, do something that may put you in an uncomfortable position, right? Yeah. That's how you get to something new and different. So, yeah, if when people feel like this is an uncomfortable moment, Right? The first thing is, is what I take as good heart from all of this is that when people say they're afraid to offend people, I say, great, that means you don't want to be offensive. Yeah. That's a good thing. We shouldn't want to be offensive. So like, let's celebrate that. Let's like, hold that. And then second is let's, we have to get a little bit comfortable with discomfort if we are going to change and we're going to change the world.
0: Totally. And have patience, I think, with ourselves and with each other, not only for the fuck-ups, but just, I mean, it's, and that's so easy for me to say. And again, like there, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be It's easy to say until you do it. Yeah. When people are like, are you kidding? Like, why should I be patient? You know, like, do you know what my, I... it's hard. And I get, I get that, but it's also, I feel like we're all trying to get there without being offensive. Yeah. I don't know where to go from here. <laughs>
1: I think this is the part where you say something offensive just to then see what happens. I'm kidding. Don't do that. It was a
0: bad joke. It sort of relates, but can you define competitive
1: victimhood? (laughs) Well, okay. So that was a a really interesting leap there. (laughs) Um, And I'm not going to comment on that, but what I will do is answer your question. So, well, it is interesting, right? I mean, competitive victimhood does relate to Mm -hmm. to some extent to some of this. I was recently... Going back to our previous conversation, in an argument with some right winger who was like, "You know, you on the left are all focused on calling out racism and misogyny, and blah blah blah, and you're ignoring anti-Semitism." It's like, bruh, it's not, this isn't like the oppression Olympics. Like they're all bad. It's okay. We can <laughs> we can be against all of them, and we are, right? And so there's this way in which and and. The actual phenomenon of competitive victimhood comes out of conflict studies. It comes out of what scholars call intractable conflicts. We might be in one now in this country, we're getting there, but especially conflicts like Israel-Palestine, where they are just, well, intractable. And where what happens is, is, look, each side feels victimized. And each side can point to reality, to facts. Yeah. to justify their, look, it's, it's true. In that situation, it's true, right? The Isra- Israelis have a obviously long history as Jewish people of oppression and marginalization and have specific examples throughout the modern history of this prior to the formation and since the state of Israel of feeling victimized and attacked unfairly by Palestinians and vice versa. Plenty of examples of unfair oppression, marginalization, violence, mm-hmm. injustice, etc. And if all you do is selectively point to the worst thing that the other side did, you then feel justified in whatever thing you're doing to perpetuate the conflict. Right. And what you end up doing is competing over your victimization instead of actually owning your part of a conflict and starting to solve it. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic, again, plays out when we feel like we can't have justice and equality for all, when there's a some kind of false trade-off between talking about rights, justice equality for one group versus another, et cetera. It's actually not how it works. And those dynamics keep us mm-hmm. from lifting everyone up.
0: Well, I know we're out of time, but you have to answer the main Uh, the title of your book, What is the Opposite of Hate?
1: right, okay, so here you go, The Opposite of Hate. First of all, the reason I chose it, right, is to me it was a title that has a journey in it, right? Like, you don't get there, you're not done. You don't arrive at this destination of perfection, you constantly have work to do. Mm -hmm. As an individual and as society, you're never completely safe. Yeah, And then the, the actual answer is, look, it's not love. You don't have to love people to not hate them. You're welcome. And you don't even have to like them. But what you have to do is find some understanding of our common humanity. That in spite of our differences and our disagreements, our history in the past, our habits in the present, there is we do share more in common as human beings than we don't. And we all, regardless of our beliefs, our identities, our attitudes, or even our actions, Right? I don't believe anyone is the worst thing they've ever done or said or thought. We all are entitled to rights and dignity. And when we recognize that, that connection, when we experience and appreciate our connection to each other, all the studies show, all the lived experience, all the history shows, that's what actually fights hate.
0: Thanks for joining my conversation with Sally Cohn. I've already started practicing her methods of listening and affirming before trying to persuade, and it is much more effective. To learn more about Sally's work, head to sallycohn.com, and you will not regret picking up a copy of her book, The Opposite of Hate. Thanks for joining us today. As always, we appreciate you listening, and we love hearing your feedback. Please rate, review, and share with your friends, and just tap subscribe if you want to keep up with new episodes. Thanks for listening and talk
1: soon.